You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. You should not have to compete in the woke Olympics just to get a job or just to get admitted to a school. And so in Florida, we said we're the state where woke goes to die. And we have made that a reality. We're going to do that for the country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is campaigning to bring his anti-woke agenda from Florida to the rest of the country. But one of his woke bans has been running into trouble in the courts. And now the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals appears skeptical of Florida's 2022 Stop the Wrong to Our Kids and Employees Act, better known as the Stop Woke Act. A panel of judges heard oral arguments in a First Amendment challenge to the part of the law that restricts how businesses can conduct diversity training for their employees. A federal judge had already blocked both the workplace and university classroom portions of the law late last year. Joining me is David Lopez, a university professor at Rutgers Law School and the former general counsel of the EEOC. So, David, tell us about this anti-woke law. I think the act was pressed by uh, Governor DeSantis as part of an effort to sort of restructure the political landscape, both in Florida and in the United States. And it's been influential. And There have been other states, mostly in the South and Midwest, who have also adopted similar type of legislation. The legislation aims at basically restricting discussion of eight specific concepts that the state deems repugnant. And some of these you know, relate to issues such as affirmative action, such as reparations, such as discussions about institutionalized racism and institutionalized sexism. And so almost immediately, this act was challenged by students and educators in Florida and it's also been challenged by the business community. And what this act does that has drawn a lot of attention outside of the substantive sweep is that it actually creates a private right of action that allows individuals to sue either professors or universities or businesses who violate the act. And so for me, you know, I've worn different hats in my life. So I've been the dean of a law school and the general counsel. And in that capacity, we have pushed certain types of training that take into account the changing diversity of the workforce and also really, I think, greater attentiveness to issues such as sexual harassment and other forms of harassment in the workplace. And, you know, obviously this is to make sure that people understand 
their rights, but also to kind of build strong teams and productive workforces. I'm also now a professor and I teach in the area of civil rights. And so obviously I look at this act with my professor hat in terms of how do I best generate conversation about these really important topics in the classroom. But I'm also a plaintiff-led lawyer, or as I tell my wife, I was a lawyer. <laughs> um, and I brought employment litigation. And so I also look at this act in terms of how it was written and what opportunities it might provide to the places far to really create mischief. And so the interesting thing is that, you know, this act, I think, represents what I had foreseen when I was at the OC is really a collision course between sort of the free market, pro-business wing of the Republican Party and really sort of the cultural warriors that focused on issues such as critical race theory and abortion and immigration and drag shows, right? And so I think that these two are really kind of coming into conflict here because, you know, from the perspective of the business community, this means more litigation, right? This is government regulation that threatens additional litigation. And that's before you even get to the First Amendment, the very critical First Amendment issue. The appeal of the 11th Circuit currently is over the workplace diversity training. The main argument there is the plaintiffs who represent the business say that that violates our First Amendment rights. Yeah. And I mean, this is a big First Amendment battle. And in some ways, it's really ironic because Florida is a state, as we know, which is incredibly diverse and also includes many people who end up in Florida really searching for freedom. But I think with this type of legislation, if you believe the district court, which has already issued two preliminary injunctions, these are sweeping restrictions on free expression in the First Amendment. So this is a case that involves the private sector and involve DE&I training. The other case, which also arises out of the same act, involves students and universities. The other one went up. There was a preliminary injunction issued by a judge in Tallahassee. That went up to the 11th Circuit. The 11th Circuit upheld the preliminary injunction. This one, there's another preliminary injunction, and that's what's being argued in front of the 11th Circuit. But so far, you know, the state of Florida has really taken a beating on this one. And, you know, I didn't listen to the argument. I just read the press accounts. But it sounds like it faced some skepticism in front of the 11th Circuit, which, by the way, is considered probably one of the friendliest circuits for a case like this for the state of Florida. And there were two Trump appointees on the panel and one Clinton appointee. What did they make of the argument from the state that we're not regulating speech, we're regulating conduct. I think, you know, at least one and probably two expressed considerable skepticism about that, um, given that the legislation itself identifies eight categories of speech that basically the state itself has declared repugnant. So the exposure of liability in the act is related to the training, but it's as importantly, it's related to training that incorporates these types of ideas. And I think that the district court was very clear in terms of like how this constitutes viewpoint discrimination, because it talks about like, if you take, you know, sort of the converse, or you take the opposite position, that you're able to express those ideas without facing liability. But these certain specific types of ideas, you know, potentially will pull the trigger on liability, whether meritorious or not. There was a time, and probably still now, where businesses are worried about frivolous lawsuits. So whether meritorious or not, you know, these types of ideas can trigger lawsuits. Yeah, so one of the judges, Judge Britt Grant, said, you can make them listen to literally anything except those topics. 
basically, I mean, she seemed to be hinting that this is viewpoint discrimination. Yeah, and this is a court of review, but that really does sort of pick up on what the district court said when it issued its preliminary injunction. And, you know, it provided examples both in the education context and in the employment context. So here it says, for instance, if an employer mandates a very well-regarded book called The Color of Law, which deals with the history of government-mandated housing segregation in this country and how it affects wealth today, that the employer could get into trouble. But if it required that the employees read, you know, Woke Incorporated inside Corporate American Social Justice Stand by one of our um, Republican presidential candidates, that that would not trigger liability, right? And I really have to say as a law professor that, and I've taught this, that my law students pick apart many, many different either loopholes or potentials for liability. I think the district court talked about some that, you know, certainly were probably not within the contemplation of the state, you know, for instance, talking about American exceptionalism, which seemed to fall within the language of, of the act, a discussion about whether Cuban migrants are entitled to a privileged position in the immigration system, which seems to run afoul of the act. And, you know, both of those are topics that will trigger a lot of discussion, right? But they would seem to fall within the language of the act, as well as something like the propensity of men to commit gender-based violence as opposed to women. And to talk about that in sort of in realistic terms and historical terms would also seem to run afoul of the act. So much has been focused on the race aspect, because I think that's where the governor's trying to stand the politics, but this also includes gender. And so for each of these topics, you have to consider how it relates to the gender context. So I just think that the district court came up with a lot of examples of how this is viewpoint discrimination. But I think, you know, as an employment lawyer, one that really jumped out to me that was really surprising is that part of the act talks about, you know, the suggestion that kind of neutral or colorblind selection measures are discriminatory, um, that's the repugnant act. And obviously, in academia, the whole issue of colorblindness as to whether it perpetuates historical discrimination and current discrimination is a really hot topic, and it's one that's heavily debated, and it should be debated, right? But I think a little bit more to the point is that the unanimous decision of Griggs versus Duke Power, which is a 1972 decision you know, basically encapsulated that idea that neutral principles can be discriminatory regardless of intent. And then that was ultimately codified by Congress by like a 92 to 5 vote in 1991. Like disparate impact has been codified and disparate impact aimed almost by its terms at systemic discrimination and at neutral measures, right? So if you're an employer and you want to train on what the law is, you're potentially running afoul of the state law. If you endorse the Civil Rights Act in 1991, query whether you're also running afoul of the state law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I've been talking to David Lopez, former general counsel at the EEOC, and a visiting distinguished professor at Arizona State University about the 11th Circuit oral arguments over Florida's so-called Stop Woke Act. Before the break, you were about to talk about why having these conversations is particularly important in Florida today. Particularly after there was what has apparently been a race-based shooting in Jacksonville, is that in 1994, the Florida legislature passed a law that basically set aside $2.1 million for the known survivors of the Rosewood Massacre, which was a massacre of a black community in Levy County, Florida in 1923, right? And it also set aside a scholarship fund. And the governor, when he signed it, talked about the state's shame and moral responsibility. So the state itself, in my view, to its credit, you know, recognized this history and recognized it in a way that they provided what they regarded, you know, really broadly as sort of a moral compensation for this harm that was part of Florida at the time. And as of yesterday, some may argue that there's a through line between that violence and what happened. And so I think it's important for Floridians as a very diverse state to be able to have these conversations in sort of an unfettered setting. And for responsible employers who now have diverse workforces, I think it provides a lot of scary, scary exposure for litigation. And that's why it's being challenged in the first Another issue the plaintiffs brought up was that this law is overly vague. I mean, it's hard to tell exactly what you can say in these diversity trainings and what you can't say. I really don't put on my plaintiff's side half that much, but I'm like, oh, if I were a cynical plaintiff's side lawyer, this could be a gravy train in a lot of ways that I don't think that the state really thought through very well. But putting that hat aside, putting on either my employer hat, but also my professor hat, it's hard to make heads or tails. So a lot of the women's person talks about whether, I think the state sort of started to make conceptions that, no, you can talk about this, you just can't endorse it. But at what point does triggering the discussion constitute an endorsement? I don't think that's clear, right? And the state's like, look at the dictionary, but I don't think that's clear. I don't think that would be clear for me as a professor who assigns the color of the law, who assigns the new Jim Crow, which argues there's systemic discrimination in the criminal justice system and requires the devil in the grove, which is about Thurgood Marshall in Florida in the 1940s navigating the realm of racial violence in that state. And I endorse that book. And that book talks about a lot of these issues. You know, I don't know at what point are you like endorsing the book or you're just like, oh, well, read it. Let's talk about it. And, you know, whatever. As a professor, I think that some of the politicians completely don't get this. What you want is you want to have a robust discussion from a broad range of perspectives. I think what this legislation does in a state that's very diverse, it makes any conversation about race or gender, either at the university or in the workplace, you know, fraught with peril. 
Florida also said, well, this law only applies if the diversity training is mandatory for employees. And one of the judges said, how do you train an employee if they aren't required to go? But suppose it's not mandatory. I'm going to basically express something that I've heard expressed to me by employers, which I actually think makes a lot of sense. They're sort of damned if they do and damned if they don't, right? So if you take something like sexual harassment in the post-Me Too era, and that is a form of DEMI training. If you conduct sexual harassment training, the U.S. Supreme Court law encourages you to do that, to take voluntary measures at compliance, to have a policy to address these issues. And those trainings can actually, and I think should include a discussion about gender violence in our society and deal with issues of, of gender and sex. But potentially, if you say something that is viewed as too sweeping, if you make it sound like women are by and large, which I think is statistically true, more likely to be victims of gender violence by men than the other way around, you, you can get yourself in trouble under this act. And then even more broadly, I think with DE&I training, I think the whole idea of that is to sort of build teams and to create a productive workforce and get people working together, right? There's still a lot of segregation in this country, but the workforce is where people come together. And as an employer, you want people working together productively. You want, you want them working together as teams. And sometimes that requires that you navigate a lot of the issues that exist outside of the workplace that are brought into the workplace, right? And so, you know, in the state of Florida, as I mentioned, there was a, a apparently race-based shooting that, you know, the city of Miami about 30, 40 years ago was wracked by numerous incidents of civil unrest following shootings by the police department of, of African-American men. And people are talking about that, right? And people have opinions about that. And people think about that. And they bring that into the workplace. And for you in the workplace to try to navigate, you know, these disparate views from these disparate backgrounds and disparate perspectives in order to build a team, that is now fraught with peril. It's really hard to say, well, okay, we're going to do this training, but only only for people who want to go, right? Or we're going to have sexual harassment training for only people who want to go. We're going to have racial harassment training, but only for people who want to go, right? Otherwise, it's optional. You know, I think employers, with a lot of the policies, a lot of their training, that almost like undercuts the purpose of training in the first place. Do you have a feeling for how the 11th Circuit's going to rule on this? It's kind of hard to tell where the court's going to go on that. What I would predict is regardless of how it goes, there will probably be petitions for either en banc review or for Supreme Court review. I hate to make predictions. You know, I think for the state, this is a real uphill battle and a very costly battle. But I think it's fair to say that, you know, he's, he's had a First Amendment problem in the courts, not only in this area, you know, but in other areas. And I think I think part of the problem here, and this is me putting on my law professor hat, is I think that the performative nature of the politics here, the, the attempt to, I think, you know, establish a brand took precedence over, I think, kind of serious drafting of legislation and thinking it through. And, you know, that happens a lot. The politics of legislation will often lead to bad legislation instead of the careful um, lawyering that I think you need to do to enact legislation that's not going to cost taxpayers a lot of money and then ultimately get struck down. And so I'm in Arizona. So I've seen a lot of that in Arizona. Arizona went through a period in the 2010s where it was really the ground zero of a lot of anti-immigration legislation and also, you know, bans against Mexican-American studies and English-only bans and almost all of that got struck down in the courts as, you know, violative of the Constitution, mm-hmm. right? And so I just think that Florida didn't invent the strategy before Arizona, there's California. Now, 
you know, Texas jumping on board. And I just think that sometimes, and I'm, I can't say this is happening now, but I think sometimes the politicians are like, oh, even if it gets struck down, then I'll just sort of blast the court. It's still kind of a win-win for it. Well, we'll see whether it's a win at the 11th Circuit or not. Thanks so much for being on the show, David. That's David Lopez, the former general counsel of the EEOC. He's a professor at Rutgers Law School and a visiting professor at Arizona State University. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.